Hello and welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. Today I'm joined by friend and colleague Chris Hansen, Three Pillars Senior Vice President of Media and Information Services. And we're thrilled to welcome Howard Tierski as our guest today. Howard provides perspectives on the digital media landscape and the critical role unique content plays in driving audience engagement today. He has started Internet, Intranet, and other digital media pages for his previous companies, including Ernst & Young and Capgemini, and is the author of the Wall Street Journal's best-selling book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. Howard, it's so great to have you with us today. And listen, you started your career in media when the internet was just beginning to gain traction. How do you think online media has changed since you started your career? And kind of a part two to this question, how do you think those changes have strengthened the industry overall? Yeah, well, I mean, it was just a novelty when I started working in online media, right? It was not important. <laughs> it was just like, oh, there's this minor marketing channel, this sort of academic sort of weird thing that grew out of something that nobody cared about, or at least nobody in the business world was focused on. And then, you know, it, it wasn't like it burst onto the scene overnight. When I started in this space, we were, you know, I was working for a large consulting company and we were going to companies and they were asking the question, well, why should we even have a website? Like who would even go there? And that was that was the dialogue back in when was that? You know, I don't know, 1994 or something like that. So I've been in this game a long time. So, you know, today, of course, the whole world revolves around it. You know, my my book I call Winning Digital Customers because my observation is that the vast majority of people that are the customers of major brands today, whether it's B2B or B2C, they're living a lifestyle with digital at the center. And that is just, it couldn't be a longer distance. I can't imagine a longer distance from where we started. That has now become the dominant component in so many people's lives. People sleep with their phones by the side of their bed. They check their phones hundreds of times every day. And if you ask most people, you know, what's the feeling they have all day if they accidentally leave the house without their smartphone? It's one of despair. It's that important of a part of their life. So it's, we've come a long way, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about it as, from a, a perspective of despair, it's kind of traumatic when you do think about leaving your, your iPhone or your, your smartphone at home. Uh, it, ha it has become that, that digital piece has become that important in everyone's world and everyone's life. And if you feel that you need to engage with a brand that's a part of your life, and even if you have that device, but the experience is a frustrating one, a disappointing one, a confusing one, one that is not consistent with your expectations based on what you experience from the best digital brands, that can also lead to feelings of maybe despair, anger, resentment, feeling unappreciated, feel that that brand must not care about you or they would have done a better job. And you know, I mean, we, we, re, we do a lot of customer research, so we see this firsthand. So I've really had a chance to observe how much, how passionate people are about this and how much they believe it means when they are interacting with a brand and having a negative experience that they blame, rightly or wrongly, on that brand not having bothered to architect something that's world-class. Yeah, we certainly moved from that omni-channel to omni-digital for, for sure. Yeah. Hey, Howard, so, so I might have started a little bit after you, but not too far after you, and I'm on media, and I've watched the changes that have happened, but surprised at how little has changed in the past 
20 plus years. Uh, it seems like there is a, a new age coming on in terms of customer experience and with digital uh, an ability to do better storytelling. Do you think do you think we're getting improvement there? Do you think storytelling is part of the digital transformation that that brands are going through? Are they embracing it or, or are they still in this very tactical, I'm going to deliver ads, I'm going to deliver marketing messages. They're going to be somewhat disconnected. Uh, I don't care about the experience for the customer. I just got to get ads in front of them. Well, I couldn't agree more that storytelling is... It's the core... In many ways, it's the core of business. Um, When we think about doing things like customer journey mapping, what we're really acknowledging is that people are going through a story. And our job as brands is to figure out how we can be not really the hero of the story, but really empower our customers as they move through those stories and create a better outcome for them and a more satisfying story. Um, I think that you know we see storytelling in, in different areas. Uh, about half the work that I do is in the media and entertainment industry, uh, working with brands like large sports leagues and cable channels and things like that. And so uh, I think there's no question that digital has been fantastic for the uh, impact of story on our, on our society because for, for multiple reasons. But it, a lot of it is to do with the democratization of storytelling. If you go back 25 years, who got to tell a story? It was somebody that was on network television or someone whose film was in a major, you know, major motion picture release and therefore was in the theaters or somebody whose novel was picked up by one of a handful of large publishing houses. And today, any voice can get out and tell a story. And certainly the impact of digital, kind of digitally native, more or less, brands like Netflix and Hulu and even HBO, which has done a tremendous job of transforming from a pre-digital world to a digital world, but by leveraging digital, has transformed the business of storytelling. And the impact of that transformation of the business of storytelling is that the people who tell the stories have been given much more freedom to tell the stories in a way that's consistent with their artistic vision. And I think the consequence of that has been a massive increase in the quality of, let's just say, filmed entertainment for sure. And while I'm not as much of a consumer of novels and things like that, I I would suspect that you know, the whole independent the ability for self-publishing, which has always been present, but but in a kind of a limited way, and now all of a sudden is the most dominant form of publishing, at least in terms of numbers of titles, has meant that all these new voices are out there. And I think all of that has been transformational to the world of storytelling. I'm a believer in the democratization of media. You know, I'm a creative person at heart. My academic degrees are all in theater and film and television, you know, so... I believe things that that empower creators and get rid of executives who are trying to filter out, even if they're trying to do it for the sake of quality, because very often they're just just wrong. And that's why I think the quality of, at least again, I'm talking specifically about television programming, is often not what it could have been in the past. And I think that's why it's so much greater today is that there's just more power and control in the hands of artists. What do you think? I agree. However, I do worry that there is just so much out there right now in entertainment. But even if you look at, you can, you can take it broadly across the digital spectrum, the digital landscape, whatever whatever definition you want to put around that. I mean, the the sheer amount of of advertising, marketing messages, content, uh, etc., is overwhelming. I, I'm curious to see how that impacts my kids, their consumption habits, the content that they consume, how they use channels that likely the three of us don't use, TikTok, Snap, etc. Those emerging channels, I think, are going to become... And if you look at the content, it's definitely democratized, uh, short form 
it's just a lot. It's a lot that that's being taken in with a, not a ton of curation. It's probably a good thing. Ultimately, more is not necessarily bad. But I just wonder what the future of entertainment looks like, the future of digital looks like, the future channels and, and how they emerge, what they're going to look like based on what we see right now. So I'm, I'm curious. Always open. I'm a creative at heart as well. So I appreciate these things. More content is a good thing. I've definitely seen some great things out there that probably couldn't have come to light in the old world. But, uh, but we'll see sort of the impacts of it, I think, over the next 10 years or so and, and what changes digitally and from a content perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, think, I think we see a, um, a pendulum swinging back and forth in terms of curation versus open, you know, overwhelm. Let's say curation versus overwhelm, right? And or or and you know too narrow curation limits creative voices, and if there's total overwhelm, then of course that makes it hard to find anything, which also limits creative voices because people just throw up their hands and say it's too much work to find something. And I think actually we're seeing the pendulum swing back a little bit more towards curation now through more aggressive algorithms. You know, it used to be that you know I mean I remember I, I created a, a animated cartoon series, uh, several animated cartoon series for YouTube back in. 2006. And within a couple of days of posting those videos, you know, we'd get 500,000, 800,000 views on some of those videos. Today, I think if I did the exact same thing, I think I'd get 50 because my channel isn't blessed by YouTube and I don't have enough, whatever, whatever the algorithm loves. You couldn't just create fresh content and put it out there and be seen by so many people. And I think that's partly because there's more content, but partly because I think the algorithms are being honed to favor the leading content more and more and more. And, and that's a question ultimately of what, you know, what is in the best interest of the, of the viewer and what is in the best interest of the platforms who want to drive more views and more advertising impressions and those kinds of things. And so I actually think we've seen that pendulum swinging back, not back to the, where it was before, where some executive got to decide whether you have a voice. But if you can put your content on YouTube, but it only gets shown, let alone viewed by but even only shows up in the feed of 10 people, only shows up in the search results of 10 people, then obviously you don't really have much exposure. And so that's, and then you start to need the kind of resources of a giant studio to market it because you can't be found without big dollars. And so, and then that's, that's less democratized. So uh, we'll see where that perfect balance of that pendulum is. But I think that's the, that's the back and forth that we see in the market today. Great point. Great point. I agree with you. I think the algorithms are going to be the ones that now become the deciders, the curators, and how you handle that is going to be the game that you have to play. Where before it was probably more, you know, execs at at, at these um, studios, etc., who are doing it. Um, so yeah. things are changing, and digital is maybe creating new digital opportunities. That's the cool part. It's always evolving and evolving really fast. Today, it's not a human you have to convince; it's an algorithm. You have to figure out how can I, as an artist, get the algorithm to like me. Now we're not appealing to people; we're appealing to code. You know, we may see the extension of that. Of course, anyone who's been concerned about search engine optimization for years has been thinking about this question about not just how do I create great content, but how do I create content that an algorithm will like? And now that's true not only of web pages but of all kinds of content. And Increasingly, I think in the coming decade, we're going to see it's true of humans as well. You know, and in the future, I think we're going to start to see more employee performance also be measured by these types of algorithms. And so if you want to get a promotion or you're going to want to get a raise, you're going to be thinking not just how do I get my boss to like me or maybe even not primarily, 
But again, how do I get an algorithm to like me? And it's kind of a funny world in which the computers are judging us and deciding which humans or which human production-like content deserves to get ahead. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about storytelling because you had, had shared uh, at the top of the conversation, right, the importance of storytelling. The title of your book is Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. And storytelling is such a part of winning digital customers. So what are a few steps that companies can take to win those digital customers that you reference in your book? What is exciting? What, what is the conflict? And so what, what is the goal? You know, every story, Aristotle, right, will tell us, you know, well, you have to have a hero and you have to have a, a, a goal and you have to have an obstacle or a villain or something in the way and a, a strategy. How are they going to try to overcome it? And then obviously you have an outcome, either positive or negative. So uh, I think you asked me, what do companies need to do to deliver, to win digital customers? Well, first of all, when we talk about winning, you, you need to define what does that mean? What is winning to your business? And, you know, I work with dozens and dozens and dozens of large companies. And on a one level, most of those companies, if not nearly all, want the exact same thing in the end. What do they want? They want money. They want revenue. They want profit. They want growth. They want share value. This is the ultimate measures of any kind of business success. Now, that's not about winning digital customers. That's about, if you will, winning the game of business. But in the end, that's what most people running a business, small or large, ultimately are measuring their success at. And so I think. The first thing that is an important link in the chain is for companies to say, all right, well, what is winning the customer? How do I define winning the customer in the context of my ultimate business goals? And some of it's kind of obvious, but nevertheless, first step is to be clear on it. For example, I want more customers. I want certain types of customers. I want higher value customers. I want customers to stay longer. I want customers to refer their friends. I want customers to not return my product. I want customers to not call my call center and spend three hours on the phone having them help them install, uh, you know, in install the product. Right? So just create that list. And I talk about this in some detail in the book of the what is winning the customer. But I would suggest that winning the customer is typically defined in terms of behavior. There are certain customer behaviors that equal business outcomes, revenue, profit, et cetera, for the company. And so that's sort of the first step back from the pure business outcomes is defining the customer behavior. And then once you've done that, obviously, you know, well, I say obviously, maybe it's obvious or not. I would argue the main goal of a business, any business, is to drive the behavior of their customers. Because if they do that successfully, they're probably going to get those business outcomes. And if they fail, and it kind of doesn't matter what else they do. If they can't get the customers to do what they need them to do, it doesn't matter if they've got like the world's greatest inventory management system implemented. You know, it's not going to help. So then it goes to the question of, well, what is it that drives customer behavior? How do we influence the behavior of customers or anybody for that matter? Thoughts and feelings come really mainly from one thing, which is from experiences. So the experiences that we create for our customers, whether those are sales experiences or the experience of opening your packaging or when they call your call center for help or seeing your advertising or what have you, those experiences are our opportunity to generate thoughts and feelings in line with the behaviors that we want. And so then ultimately, that is a long-winded way of saying the first step is to understand the customer. Because if you think that you've got this Newton's ball chain, right? If I can get the right experiences that generate the right thoughts and feelings, 
that you know, sort of moving that kinetic energy from ball to ball, you know, that ultimately drive the behaviors that generate the business results. But what is it? What are the experiences that will generate which thoughts and feelings that will generate which behaviors, et cetera? And so ultimately, the answers to those questions are generally found through different types of customer research, which is why, to, to me, any kind of, say, digital transformation starts by saying, who's our customer? What is it we want from them? And what is it that they want? What are their thoughts and feelings and goals? And what's standing in their way so that we can start to conceptualize how we can create a better experience that will ultimately... It's just like if you're in a relationship with a person personally, you need to understand them in order to be able to meet their needs. Absolutely. And so you 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 mentioned kind of the understand your customer and you have some others in your book, map the customer journey, build the future, optimize the short term, and then lead the change. And you touched on those. And I love the succinctness with which you also outline in the book. So thank you for that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, and as you say, you know, once you've understood the customer, if, of course, if you stop there, you probably won't have accomplished much. You'll just be smarter. You know, right. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make you money. Sure. So uh, you know, uh, and so yes, as you say, you know, Matt, what we talk about in the book, and happy to delve into anything in more detail that you want now, or obviously it's described in great detail in the book. Taking that insight then and using it to figure out, well, okay, what would be the future customer journey that will drive my business results? And then once you've figured that out, you still haven't really made any more money. You've just made some pretty PowerPoint slides or diagrams or things, but that's critical to have the strategy, the vision. But nevertheless, then you have to actually execute on that. And then, uh, so we talk about that in the book and how to use design thinking principles to effectively execute a customer journey and the relationship between customer journeys and design thinking. And then while you do those two things, you got to be looking for the low-hanging fruit because real transformation is often time-consuming. It takes many months, quarters, and often many years. And so you always want to be looking out for, you know, if, I, if there's ways that I'm letting my customer down today, disappointing them, confusing them. Some of them may require a whole new technology stack and a new app and all that. But you know, some of them, about like rewording a button, you know, and let's make sure we're not missing those opportunities to make quick fixes while we're focused on the long-term future. But let's not do the opposite either. Let's not just say, well, let's just focus on all these, like, let's just focus on rearranging the furniture instead of building a fantastic new experience. I think you need a, a blend of both. And then as you say, the fifth step, which really is described last in the book, but arguably it's the most important, which is to lead the change. Because most companies today to survive in the future, they need to transform in substantial ways because the world and the customer have changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years. And most companies can't change that fast. And so they're behind. Of course, not every company is behind, but a lot of companies are behind. The majority of companies are not changing at the pace of the customer. There's a great Jack Welsh quote that I mentioned in the book, and I, I, I quote all the time, but I love it, which is he said, and this is back in the 80s, and most people know he was the CEO of General Electric. And he, I think, 10 x the stock price while he was CEO there. So massively successful, huge turnaround. And he said, when the speed of change on the outside exceeds the speed of change on the inside, the end is near. So, And when I see, use that quote with cl- customers or you know, my clients, they're almost always nodding, just like you are. And yet, that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they're changing more slowly than the outside. But of course, anyone individual at a company can see that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're empowered to figure out how to speed it up. But that's, that's such a key thing now. And of course, COVID has accelerated it only more. So, so you mentioned it, and I totally agree. I think most companies will nod and say, yes, we know we need to change. We need to transform. Yeah, COVID especially, it, the accelerator word accelerating coming out of COVID is definitely something we're seeing. What are tips for companies who are, maybe they don't realize yet, but are behind? Tips for them to deal with this digital transformation and, and become a better 
digital company, have a digital mindset? Any any quick tips? Yeah. So, well, the first question you have to ask is, where do you want to be? Right. In other words, are you where you want to be? I mean, there may be some companies who you and I can look at them and say they're behind, but their leadership would say, we're really happy with where we are now. Right. And if that's the situation, then there's a need to create some kind of burning platform, right? To help help educate and help create greater insight on the part of the decision makers into why da- there's danger ahead. And they may already be seeing the economic impact of that mindset. But th- so that's that's one scenario. The other scenario is where the leaders would say, oh no, 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 no. We know we're behind. We know where we are not where we need to be to be successful for the future. In which case, the most important question you can ask is, so what's holding you back? There must be some reason. And you know, in the book, I talk about a lot of things that can be holding companies back. It could be they don't have a clear enough vision. It could be that they don't know how to execute it. It could be they've been trying to execute it and they keep failing. In which case, you want to look and say, well, wait a minute. You know, you, you've already spent $100 million on digital transformation and you haven't gotten anywhere. It's sort of a troubleshooting process. So Howard, we love to do something called, and we do this with all of our guests. We ask these of all of our these questions of all of our guests. They're called speed round questions. So I'm going to kick it off with, what was your first interaction with technology? It was a really profound moment. My mother taught at the City Colleges of Chicago. And as a small child, and this would have been probably like 1972, something like that, I was four or five years old, I got to go to the computer lab at Truman College in Chicago. And they had, at the time, something called a PET computer, which had orange screens, and it had a light pen that you could touch the screen with. And there were some games that you could play and things like that, you know, very simple games. But I was amazed by that. And I would always beg my mother to take me back to work with her and let me play in the computer lab because it was just this amazing thing to me that I could take this pen with this light coming out of the end and touch it to the screen and control it. It's a great memory. It's amazing. It feels like, um, again, I'm probably around the same uh, generation, same thing, similar similar technologies. Uh, for me, I think it was like, Pong playing that for the first time right. it was mind blowing. Right. I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is amazing!" I have a controller; I can control that thing on the screen. Even that was your TV with a little switch on the back of it. Right, it was, it was, right. It was amazing. Yeah. What's your favorite piece of tech that you're using right now? You know, this is going to sound weird, but I, one of my uh, hobbies is I, I'm very interested in automatic watches, mechanical watches. And so, if I had to pick something that I feel the most like passionate about. I mean, I love Alexa. We use Alexa all the time and other things. But I would have to say that really cool, you know, meticulously crafted. What am I wearing now? Like a Panerai, like automatic watches, like like something like this. You know, that you can look at the back and you can see like the the mechanism and how a, a master watchmaker has crafted this. And what I love about it is, you know, there's no electricity, there's no battery. I'm talking about, you know, not a quartz watch, but a, a true mechanical winding watch. And yet they build in all these sophisticated complications that can tell the date and know about leap year or do all these things. So I'm always in awe because it's just so different from what I do. There's no way you can write code. Someone has to actually build something out of metal that will actually keep time for years on end. And I would say those are the bits of tech, if you will, that I'm most personally passionate about. What is the most used app on your smartphone? It's probably Instacart. I, especially during COVID, I have become, you know, before that, I might have said Uber. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't go anywhere. I mean, of course, it's changing back again. That's you the know. opposite. It's bringing to uh, you. Right. How do I get things to come to me? Yeah. So definitely, uh, I mean, I don't use it every day. So, but, you know, pretty often. 
So Howard, what's the one piece of advice to students, to colleagues, to to you know folks that have worked with you that you've given over the years? That's sort of your stock advice, things that um, will help them grow in their career. Hmm. I don't know if I have one piece of stock advice, but I think that value every single year of your career. Like, don't ever think it makes sense to sort of do what you don't really want to be doing for a while because you think it's going to lead you to what you want to be doing. You got to find a way to just demand to find to to do what you want to be doing right now, <laughs> because most of the time the ladders that you think you're on aren't as certain as you would hope. Now, there may be exceptions to that, you know, but in the old days, you could kind of move up a ladder. Today, uh, there's so many opportunities to do what you want to do now, whether it's, you know, like write a book now, you know, like I waited till I was 50 before I published a book, even though I'd been working on one for years. I worked on multiple different ones that I never finished. But I just read a book recently, a good book about the history of, of money. After I wrote it, I discovered that the person who wrote it was currently working on their MBA at NYU and was, you know, 22 years old. And I thought that's really smart. You know, that's like publish a book now because there's no reason not to. Or if it's not publishing a book or or making a film or starting a business or whatever it is that you think you want to do, there's a million paths to success. Don't think there's only one. It's a great, great piece of advice. And thank you so much for spending time with us today it's been a real honor we've been you know very excited to talk with you and hear your thoughts and dig into the book a little bit and what a great way to to kind of wrap up the conversation on that piece of advice do it today don't wait there's no need to wait thank you so much for being part of of the innovation engine podcast today oh my pleasure i, I listen to it i enjoy the podcast and uh, i thank you both for having me it's been a great time thanks howard This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com. Three